the fact that you feel great and you exercise and work out and eat well, that doesn't necessarily mean there's not going to be an expensive medical procedure in your future. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, shall we talk some more about some of these healthcare terms? We've talked about quite a few, but there's still quite a few more to go. There's a whole aspect of health insurance not to do with co-pays and co-insurance and all of this confusing stuff that we covered before, but just to do with the nuts and bolts of going to see the doctor. You know, you have your primary care physician. Uh, maybe you go to an HMO. Maybe you're in a network. These terms are, can be somewhat confusing. So why don't we talk about, you know, what's a healthcare network, for example? Well, you know, it sounds as if it's an organization of doctors and other medical providers who are all working together. And in fact, at first blush, it might seem like it's the same thing as a group practice, but it's not. It's an insurance term. And what they're saying is um, we have approved in your area the following physicians and medical services that we will cover. And they may not know anything about each other. Some of them will be communicating with each other and others will not. So it's not a network in the traditional classical sense. It's a list of places you can go where you can get full coverage under your insurance. And if you choose to use a doctor that's out of the network, you may have a greater copay or you may not get covered at all or uh, there's all kinds of possibilities. So it can be a pretty hazy uh, mesh of restrictions and permissions and so on. And when people were worried about government taking over health care, they were often concerned, will I get to keep my own doctor? And of course, Obama famously said, yes, you can keep your own physician under the ACA, you know, which was not true. And at the time he knew was not true. I think he sort of had his fingers crossed thinking, well, the government's not going to tell you that you have to choose a different doctor. Uh, it'll depend on your insurance just as it does now. Your insurance tells you what doctors you're allowed to see under your plan. For instance, if you want coverage under the insurance we have for massage, there are dozens and dozens of massage therapists on the island here, and only a couple are covered under our insurance. So the network can be very, very important to people. But until you run up against it, I don't think most people sit down and say, okay, let me think of all the possible medical services I might need and who I might want to see. So it usually comes as a surprise to find, oh, that doctor is out of the network. And I think that's a key point is that this did not really change with the Affordable Care Act. No. It always has been the case in your health insurance, even at work. That can change from year to year. Um, especially when we get into these situations where insurance costs start skyrocketing and health premiums start skyrocketing and your HR department starts looking around for another insurer that can provide insurance that is comparable to what you used to have, but it's in a different network. Yeah. 
that forces you to change your doctor. And I think people have this idea that they have all of this freedom if government stays out of their situation. If all this freedom in the world to go choose whatever doctor they want to go to, um, I'll see this doctor for my left hand, I'll see this doctor for my right hand, I have so much freedom. Well, of course, I'm being absurd, but there's a certain amount of freedom to see a whole bunch of different doctors or whatever doctor you want that may not be entirely to your benefit either in your overall health care. And you mentioned networks. Truly, they are not interconnected the way you might think, but there is enough interconnectivity and enough limitations so that you can at least keep your medical records within a I think there's a certain amount of narrowness that's desirable in that circumstance so that your records don't just get scattered all over the place. Right. I think that people need to get off of this idea of, you know, I just need to see whatever doctor I can. It's always been the case. If you're truly wealthy, you can always pick and choose your doctor. But for the rest of us that are in insurance plans and trying to juggle uh, expensive premiums versus leverage to see whatever doctor you want, you have to start making some choices. This is the situation we're in, and uh, it's always been that way. The Affordable Care Act didn't really change anything in that regard. Another thing that is a problem sometimes is that doctors have to decide which insurances they're willing to accept. And this is not something to be entered into lightly, because on the one hand, they want to cover as many patients as possible. On the other hand, each one has different paperwork, and so it multiplies the expenses for the office if every time a doctor has to add a new insurance. So if you've got a quirky insurance that none of theirs has, they may be reluctant to take you on. And that's one function that this network restriction does is to try to say, here's the doctors you can see, and the more networks there are competing with each other, the more difficult it gets. This is one reason that uh, single payer could be cheaper by a lot than the current system because you wouldn't have the network thing. Either you're a doctor who's taking the government insurance plan or you're not, and that's it. And so you wouldn't have so much restriction. So ideally, a government-centered healthcare insurance plan would be less restrictive in terms of network than the current system that we have. Yes. On the one hand, people like to say, well, then the health insurers can compete with one another and so on. But you have to realize that all of that comes with a cost. And as long as they are health insurance for profit, there's always overhead that they're going to have to meet and they're going to have to satisfy their investors that they're making a big profit and so on, too, which the government would not be required to do. Now, you mentioned networks, and you mentioned uh, picking and choosing your network, and you also mentioned massage therapy. I know I'm not the only one that does not have massage therapy covered on my insurance. That's another thing to consider. If you have to go buy your own insurance and it's not provided through your work, or, or if you have a sphere of influence that allows you to determine what kind of insurance your work is going to provide, you might want to look at some of these other things that could be covered too, because uh, some insurance will cover massage therapy, acupuncture, naturopathy, 
other things that might be desirable for certain conditions, you don't always have the freedom to go to those people either. They won't be covered by your insurance. Uh, and if they are covered by your insurance, you need to make sure they're in your network because you won't get the full benefit if they aren't. Right. Now, how does a network differ from an HMO? We talked about that a little bit before, but let's flesh that out. Yeah, well, health maintenance organizations have been around for a long time. The idea of that was to set up networks that are real networks in which physicians and medical services would be tied in with an insurance plan and you could get it as a package. Uh, and the idea was to save money on it. And the goal was to rationalize healthcare somewhat, not make it quite so scattered and crazy making as the system we're discussing now. However, necessarily it involved restrictions. And back in the 80s, I think, is when it got a lot of people riled up with complaints that the HMO was not allowing them to get such and such a treatment that they thought was too expensive. Um, they were viewed as heartless people who were killing people off and so on. And I can't speak to how much of that was just delusion and how much was something real, but uh, it certainly caused a lot of anguish and HMO's got a very bad name. But now we've evolved into a system where everywhere you turn, there's the similar restrictions being placed. And we talked about that quite a bit before. So that the angst over HMOs has somewhat faded away. Right. Here on the West Coast, the big one is Kaiser. Is that true up in Washington also? You know, I'm not in one, so I don't really follow it. Kaiser started out as a provider for workers in Kaiser Steel. So if you worked for the company, this was your health plan. And they had their little network of doctors, and I guess they had health facilities and so on that you went to for your medical care and shots and whatnot. And it grew from there. So not that different in some ways from um, a credit union versus a bank in a way where a credit union might be tied to a particular job that you had. You know, you might be able to participate in it or not. But by now, Kaiser and other HMOs are widely available to everyone who would like to join. So it's a choice that's out there, just a different kind of thing. And I think the concept of networks kind of grows out of the concept of HMOs, where you want to have preferred providers, you want to have people going to certain clinics and so on, just for efficiency purposes. Let me throw in a little side note here. Um, same thing is true of credit unions. We have belonged for many years to the Washington State Employees Credit Union, and WSECU will now take all kinds of people, even if they aren't state employees. Uh, the big one right around where we live is the Boeing Employees Credit Union, mm. and uh, they're very open to taking on their big marketing campaigns to get people into them. And I wish more people would consider Consider them because credit unions are nonprofit and they don't do a lot of the sleazy stuff that you read about in banks. They have some disadvantages. You can't open a business account through a credit union, for instance. But um, it always surprises me that so many people just stick with banks instead of credit unions. They're really cool. Well, one of the things about HMO that people worried about, of course, was their restrictions on what they could do. And that was similarly uh, transferred over to the ACA when people were saying, well, they're going to decide what treatments you can get. 
what the ACA did was instead the opposite. It tried to put a floor underneath what you could cut. Yes. So saying, you know, if you're going to sell insurance to people, you have to be able to cover mental health, for instance, which was absent in a lot of policies. You have to be able to cover pregnancy and on and on and a number of other things. So when people argue that when the government gets involved in healthcare, it takes away your freedom and it deprives you of all this list of things, what the ACA was trying to do was increase your access to healthcare and guarantee that if you had insurance, you could get a certain minimum level of care. And the people that keep yelling for more freedom, typically, at least the ones that know what they're talking about, really are thinking about letting people take the risks on their own, not being insured for a lot of possibilities, you know, doing only life-threatening emergencies or something and not giving you free checkups and all the rest. Yeah, and let's talk for just a couple of minutes about the Affordable Care Act. You have a note here about Obamacare versus Affordable Care Act. Uh, What's the deal with Obamacare versus the Affordable Care Act? Affordable Care Act was, of course, the official name of it, and the Republicans thought that they would label it with the term Obamacare for those who didn't like Obama to make him saddled with it. And to some extent, that worked. Uh, Obama himself finally said, well, okay, if that's what you're going to call it, I'll claim it. <laughs> Go ahead and call it Obamacare. He referred to it himself a few times. Um, but I think politically, that was a bad move because it did confuse people. Uh, even a year ago, when they did interviews with the public, they found quite a few people who would say, you know, I really hate Obamacare. We've got to do away with it. But I really prefer the Affordable Care Act. It's just the same thing. It's just <laughs> the formal name versus the slangy name, uh, popular name for the same body of law. And it is very difficult to get complicated subjects across to people who don't read newspapers, don't listen to the news, don't watch it on TV, aren't really interested, be only Fox or Facebook or whatever. And uh, I don't know what percentage of the population still thinks that Obamacare and ACA are something different, but there's still some out there. And people can respond in polls and say, the Affordable Care Act is working for me. I just don't like that Obamacare. Yeah, right. It's interesting what you mentioned about uh, Obama embracing it and the Democratic Party embracing the term Obamacare eventually. This is not a unique phenomenon. There are often terms that are considered slurs, slander, whatever, that the offended group will then say, fine, I'll just take it. I saw a column in the New York Times recently about how the song, Yankee Doodle, came to be an American song, even though it began as a put-down of Americans. Well, and specifically an anti-gay put-down. It was stereotyping Americans as effeminate and girly. Exactly. That's right. And that leads to the reclaiming of the term queer. You know, there are meetings now on queer theory and journal articles and so on. Yes, And the term punk for punk rockers, another slander slur that got adopted by the so-called offended group and said, well, fine, if that's what you're going to call me, I'll wear it and I'll wear it proudly and we'll see what happens with the term after that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I think one reason that Obamacare works in a way is Affordable Care Act is an unfortunate label because it really isn't about affordable care. Ideally, it was supposed to set up these marketplaces that would cause insurance companies to compete with each other and lower their premiums. Didn't work for reasons we've discussed before. But by and large, it was not about affordable care. It was about affordable health insurance. Yes, right. And we talked about that before, how medical expenses remain very, very high. But for all of us here in the rank and file, it's the premiums that we're concerned about or should be concerned about. The confusion over what's in the act is still common. There was a young woman commentator. I don't know if she was on Fox. I didn't dig into it, but she was, uh, you know, denouncing Obamacare and how awful it was and says she didn't even need Obamacare because she was still on her parents' insurance because she wasn't 26 yet. Yeah. <laughs> That was a provision, of course, of Obamacare it said that your early 20s people could still stay on their parents' insurance. That wouldn't have been impossible without Obamacare. Right. There are a couple of other points about Obamacare that we should mention. Um, one is what it did for the pre-existing condition. This was something that health insurers used to lord over would-be customers. <laughs> it's like, well... You're not going to get health insurance for that because that's a pre-existing condition. Right. You'd been earlier diagnosed for something that now you want treatment for after you bought the insurance. So uh, the Affordable Care Act did away with this construct, not being able to get any health insurance if you had some pre-existing condition. Yeah, and they were only able to do that because of the individual mandate, which we've talked about before. The problem with the uh, pre-existing conditions, of course, is that, you know, a woman might go in and have had uh, a breast exam and find, well, it's a suspicious lump, but it, we'll just watch it for a while and see we're not sure what it means, and then later decide to buy insurance and be told when she developed breast cancer eventually, oh, well, you had this earlier diagnosis that might have been indicative of that, so we're not going to cover any of your expenses. And they all varied. They could do all kinds of highly arbitrary things. And sometimes they would point to really tangential diagnoses that had come earlier to try and wriggle out of covering something. It was a huge, huge problem. And in one fell swoop, the ACA did away with that and said, OK, none of this. But if they had not simultaneously said everybody needs to get insurance, it wouldn't have worked because then people would say, OK, I'll just wait till I'm really sick and then I'll buy insurance to cover that sickness. And that way, that creates the death spiral that we were talking about before, where the insurance is just going to get more and more expensive. People can't afford it. They go without it and the whole thing collapses. So those two things, although they might seem unrelated, are very tightly bound together. Yes, and so it's necessary for everybody to be involved in health insurance for the pre-existing component to work. And another very important component of the Affordable Care Act is the idea that there will not be a ceiling on your coverage, which is something insurers could, uh, let's just say, get away with before the Affordable Care Act. Right. They would put a ceiling on the yearly limit or the lifetime limit on how much is going to be covered. 
Yes, and that's something that's extremely hard to predict. Often uh, the biggest expenses in a person's life will come right toward the end of it. And you can't anticipate how expensive your last days are going to be. And figuring out what your insurance will allow is just not something it's possible to plan intelligently for. Right, exactly. Some people just need a whole lot of coverage. And for those of us who don't need it and end up so-called Oh, we're having to pay for those other sick people. Well, you know what? I would rather be in that situation than to be in the situation of needing that very, very long-term, high-cost care. Those people are not making bank. They have not stumbled upon some great fortune by having to confront all of these crises in health. Uh, so if we're all going to be in this system, I think we all need to agree that we're going to be covering people and seriously covering them for all of their needs. And that's because you never know if something like that could end up befalling you. And you don't want that extra stress. I think except for hypochondriacs, uh, a lot of people tend to think of themselves as probably pretty healthy and not likely to have catastrophes happen. But you never know when you're going to be hit by a truck in a crosswalk. Uh, or some other catastrophe is going to happen to you that uh, you can't predict. You know, the fact that you feel great and you exercise and work out and eat well, that doesn't necessarily mean there's not going to be an expensive medical procedure in your future. Yes. Well, we have a couple of other terms that I want to talk about. Um, they're not fitting exactly neatly, but they're worth discussing. One is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, so-called HIPAA. That is at least related to Obamacare, I guess, in the sense of certainly under Obamacare, you need to keep your insurance. This is somewhat related to that, but it predates Obamacare, right? Yes. And um, I don't know all the details with it, but what we usually run into concerning HIPAA when you go to the doctor's office is that your medical information is supposed to be shared only with doctors that you approve. And that's true of pharmacies as well. And often uh, when you're getting treatment or getting prescription, you may be asked to sign a waiver so that they can uh, exchange information. You do want your pharmacist to know what your doctor is saying and vice versa. And as you go from doctor to doctor, it can be very important. One of the big problems with American medicine is the overprescription, particularly for the elderly, of two different medicines that uh, many different medicines that either are targeting the same symptom and overtreating it and causing side effects or conflicting with other medicines you have or maybe even rendering them ineffective and in some cases it's deadly uh, and if everybody who treats you knows the same information about you all the other diagnoses the other doctors have made all the other medicines you're taking it's a big advantage HIPAA, on the other hand, was trying to restrict that information from being too widely spread so that your potential employer can't say, oh, I see you once uh, had a, a fainting spell. Maybe that means you might possibly have some condition that we wouldn't like to deal with. And so uh, I guess we won't hire you. That's the kind of thing people worry about or, you know, just somebody who has it in for you, have a disease that you're embarrassed by. 
and having somebody bring it up in a divorce or in some kind of a public feud or magazines finding out about people's medical care. So that's why there's all these waivers that are necessary and all this signing. The doctor's offices, in my experience, have gotten so used to this, they don't even explain it anymore. They'll just say this is because of HIPAA. Mm -hmm. Right. Or you need to sign the HIPAA form. And, you know, for them, it's something they deal with daily. But for the average person, they don't, don't think about HIPAA very often. Right. And this relates somewhat to what we were talking about earlier, about possible advantages of not having your health care too spread out, too many different places. The more tightly you can control that information and get a handle on it, the more benefit you can get from it. But HIPAA has advantages and disadvantages, like you say. On the one hand, you do want all your medical providers to know everything about your medical conditions. On the other hand, you don't want other people to. And sometimes it gets difficult. I asked my own practice, which is a group practice uh, where all my, almost all my doctors are connected with Virginia Mason, but they refuse to do certain forms of telemedicine because of where you would be talking to a doctor over the internet, for instance, or I said, well, could I take a photograph of this rash and scan it and send it off for you to look at? And I say, no, because of HIPAA, they were concerned about security. They say our networks aren't secure enough and so on. So it, HIPAA can cause problems even within your circle of physicians that way. Yes, yes. And you might think that having a primary care physician would be a way of controlling your information. Just keep it with one primary care physician. But let's talk about exactly what a primary care physician is and does. Well, in the old days, people had a general practitioner, a title that's still very much alive and exists, uh, that you went to for most things. And then you went to see specialists when it went beyond their expertise. But uh, primary care specialist has come to mean under the law something uh, a little different. And this is the person that sort of keeps track of coordinating your care. And the person you go to for your annual checkup. Um, interestingly, my primary care physician is so popular that I rarely get to see her, usually once or twice a year. And most of the time. I wind up seeing other people, including uh, physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, and so on, that are in the same practice. So primary care does not mean anymore what it might have meant. That is, that this is the person you always check in with first and go to first. It just depends. Doctors who still have individual practices and where you go, that may well be the case, that you, you check in with that doctor first. But uh, primary care physician can mean something much more tangential than that. Exactly. Yes. When I go to my clinic, as you say, if I'm getting a physical, I'll make an appointment with that particular doctor. But that doctor works in a clinic that I go to if I have a problem. He may or may not be available to see me, and I'll just go to somebody else, a nurse practitioner or another doctor in the practice. But that primary care physician still has the role of needing to be informed with whatever care you're being given. So whoever you see needs to report back to that primary care physician. Right. So it's not a bad way of keeping the information centralized in that way. Yeah, I had an odd experience where I was just getting some warts treated. I mean, they're a very common thing. And 
I had at one point had some actually sliced off surgically, and my primary care physician said, oh, I can't do that. I don't do internal medicine. I don't do cutting. I can freeze it, but I can't cut it. So I had to go to another doctor in the same practice who was able to do that. That's kind of surprising. Primary can be pretty narrow in its meaning. Well, Paul, I think we have talked about insurance terms, warts and all, for long enough. And I think we've hit on so many of these over time. I mean, we started out talking about the real nuts and bolts of how that coinsurance and copay and all these confusing deductibles and all of these terms that really hit your pocketbook, how that affects you. Uh, we talked about Medicare, Medicaid. We talked about how high-risk pools work. Hasn't this been our most epic discussion <laughs> that we've attempted on the podcast? We've covered so many terms, so many of these insurance terms, so many of these healthcare terms. I think next time we put up a podcast, we should switch gears. But believe it or not, down the road, I would like to talk about some of these terms that show up. Some of them show up in the Common Errors book. Yeah, well, shifting away from Affordable Care Act and insurance and so on to her medical terms, there's a lot to be said there just about medicine. We had our earlier series, of course, on antique medical terms, but there's a lot of current ones that can be confusing, too. Let's save that for some other time. We'll wrap it up on our health care and especially health care insurance terms for now. And this has been really, really interesting and a really great series of discussions. So thank you. All right. Talk to you next time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to common errors podcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The common errors in English usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com with free shipping. Thanks for listening.